I was talking with Nydia the other day, and I was just kind of going over what this spiritual progress campaign is all about that we started last week. And I was giving her different thoughts, living for the glory of God, pursuing God, seeking his face. And you know what Nydia said? You know what you're talking about, really? You're talking about Coram Deo. Coram Deo is a Latin term um, that means to live life before the face of God, to live in his presence. And it usually is encapsulated with three... It's a big term in Latin, from what I understand, that encapsulates a few ideas um, to live before the face of God, but um, more specifically, it means to live in His presence, under His authority, and for His glory. And in my school, Chapelfield Christian School and High School, every morning after we did the Pledge of Allegiance, we would say, and I pledge to live my life always, in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory, Coram Deo. And um, I'm just now realizing how rich and all-encompassing and big that idea is. That is what the Christian life is all about. I was just reading an R.C. Sproul article the other day online. It was a Table Talk magazine article from 1987, I believe, and he was talking about this very idea. Someone asked him, what is the Christian life all about? And he said, it's about Coram Deo, to live your life in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory. That's what this spiritual progress campaign is about. Spiritual progress is about living your life before the face of God. What is spiritual about it is the Holy Spirit working in your spirit to produce Christ-likeness for God's glory. So when I say spiritual, like I said last week, I don't mean private and subjective impulses necessarily, although it can be personal. I'm talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and how our efforts cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now there's two sides to spiritual progress and in that Coram Deo. The first is to live under his authority and for his glory. And last week that is what I was aiming for. Um, and I, I tried to make the point that we set the bar so low in the Christian life. I think that's partially due to a misunderstanding of grace or misconstrual of grace in preaching, um, a focus so much on justification, which is so glorious, but often at the expense of sanctification, and almost a neglect of the doctrine of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, whereby you are made a new creation for God's glory. <clears throat> So we set the bar low, and we talk about the Christian life in terms of falling down and getting back up and failure and, and just trudging forward. And certainly there's going to be times of trial in the Christian life. But what you aim for is what's important. After I preached last week, I went over to John, and John said, I wish I remembered this for my sermon, but John reminded me of a phrase, um, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. Right, And I want to say that's exactly what I'm saying about the Christian life. If we don't aim for the glory of God and God's excellence in our life, which is what we are called to, his own glory and excellence, if we don't aim to be imitators of God, then we are sure not to hit that mark. We are surely won't be imitators of God. And so I want to encourage us in this church to not set the bar so low for the Christian life. There is a God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, as Jude 24 says, 124. And that, keeping our eyes on a God who is able to keep us from stumbling, on a Christ who has ransomed us and redeemed us, and who is our example, with the power of the Holy Spirit, 
why great things are possible for transformation. That's the first side. The second side of spiritual progress is to live in his presence. And even the Westminster Catechism understood that there are two sides of the Christian life. The Westminster Catechism, question one, says, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God. What's the next part? And to enjoy him forever. They understood that there are two sides to the Christian life. So does Coram Deo, in his presence, under his authority and for his glory. And what I'm talking about here is pursuing a greater nearness, sense of nearness with the Lord, a deeper fellowship, a closer walk with the Lord, seeking his face. That's what I'm talking about today. It's to enjoy God forever. Um, so spiritual progress, just to summarize what I've said, involves aiming to live for God's glory. Today, what I'm going to be addressing is that spiritual progress also involves pursuing a deeper fellowship with God or a closer walk with God. I want to answer three questions today. Number one, what exactly does it mean to have a deeper fellowship with the Lord? Number two, what means has God given us for deeper fellowship? What avenues? Number three, how can we apply ourselves to this task? And that is going to set the tone for the rest of this series. So let me answer that first question first. What exactly does it mean to have deeper fellowship with the Lord? I believe deeper fellowship with God doesn't necessarily mean, please hear me on this, does not necessarily mean more of his presence. Deeper fellowship means and requires that you acknowledge the presence of God that you already have. You are an adopted child of the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. You're united to Christ. And you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the presence of God. And so often Christians go about without an awareness of what is true about them as a Christian. We don't step into the reality sometimes of who exactly we are. We are children of the Father, united to the Son, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the presence of God. What spiritual growth requires is not necessarily a desperate search for more of the presence of God, but to acknowledge the presence of God you already have. Turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is perhaps the most um, popular psalm today. And I think it, it shows us uh, what it means to live with a conscious acknowledgement of God in your life. This is a, Here's what a life... Here's what someone speaks like when they live with a conscious awareness of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here is a man or a woman whose God is integrated with the experiences of his life. And so the first part of developing a closer fellowship with the Lord is to not relegate God to certain times of the day only. Although I think it's very, very important. Don't, don't tell me that you live a prayerful life and never set time apart for prayer. Don't tell me that you know, study God's word when you never set time to do so. That's very important to have a disciplined, diligent um, structure, schedule, or rule of life. But what I'm talking about is not simply relegating him to certain times of the day or certain days of the week, i.e. Sunday, the Lord's Day, um, but to walk with him throughout the week and throughout the day in a conscious awareness of his presence and provision. Um, I, think, I think it was Dallas Willard um, who I've quoted a few times now in this series, but I think he's the one who says, what we have, many people have a devotional life, but what we need is a life of devotion. Many people have a prayer life, but what we need is a life of prayer. You see the difference. What I'm talking about is a lived-in relationship with God. Um, so, Live with a conscious acknowledgement of God's presence in your life. Not relegating Him or your awareness of Him to set devotional times or church only, but a conscious life where moment by moment you maintain an apprehension of God's presence, His witness, His fatherhood, your union with Christ, your possession of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 16.8 uh, puts it this way. The psalmist says, I keep the Lord always before me. He sets the Lord always before him. What is in his mind's eye is the Lord. What is my default frame of mind when I wake up in the morning? God is there. What is my mind default to? I, I want to set the Lord always before me as I uh, live the Christian life. Um, how many people have anxiety sometimes or worry in life? I do too. And you know why? Because I have little faith. It's because of my little faith that I have anxiety. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. It's because I'm not going through, walking through life with eyes of faith if and when I have anxiety. And the reason you worry, and I'm, obviously there will be times of sorrow in your life and times of pressure in your life, but... Even during those times, as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is a witness which, if you acknowledge, will keep you from anxiety, if you're a Christian. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Is not body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What Jesus is inviting you to is a perspective on life where your heavenly Father provides for you. 
and things are not outside of his control. He's not lost control. He's inviting you to see life with the eyes of faith. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arraigned like one of these. But if God clothes the field of the grass, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The key word there in that passage, if I could summarize it, is perspective. Your perspective. And it's not just thinking differently when I say perspective. I mean seeing things as they actually are instead of falsely. Jesus is teaching you, if you're a Christian, if you're his disciple, to believe that God is your heavenly Father who is providing for you. That perspective on reality is the key to a non-anxious existence as a Christian. But if you decide, choose to think falsely, you will reap false emotion of anxiety and fear and dread. Jürgen Moltmann um, said, who I don't suggest you read, but he said, um, anxiety is the anticipation of terror. Hope is the anticipation of joy. As a Christian, we should be a hopeful people and a trusting people because we have a Heavenly Father who loves us. That, that is what Jesus is teaching now, if you choose to live in light of that reality intellectually, if you intellectually choose to live in light of that reality, you will be free from anxiety emotionally and then freed up to focus on what matters eternally. Then you can seek first the kingdom of God in your life, in what you're doing, without anxiety, because you've made the conscious choice to see with eyes of faith in life. But if you decide to fill your mind with um, disease and virus counts and constant friction in America and the polarized discussions, then your life experience will be painted by that information. What will you paint the experience of your life with? What information is painting your experience? The fatherhood of God or the fear of man? So, I want to invite you, invite you to acknowledge the presence of God that you already have, his fatherhood, his witness. That's, the key. That's why you're anxious. It's because you and I so often lapse into little faith rather than seeing the divine, sovereign, loving, firm hand of God upon your life. So what does your mind attend to? Recall throughout the day, when I say a moment by moment awareness, I mean throughout the day, recall him to mind. Praise him when he comes on. Just thank him sometimes for a beautiful sunset. Or when you wake up in the morning, and your wife or your husband is asleep, your children are there. What a beautiful existence that is. Ask for help when you wake up in the morning and you feel cast down. Don't go within yourself. Lift your heart and your eyes to the Lord. Ask for help. 
He is there, and he sticks closer than a brother. Acknowledge him. Again, this is my last Dallas Willard thing. But uh, in his biography, um, Becoming Dallas Willard, great biography, the biographer said, speaking to Dallas Willard was like speaking to someone who is tuned into frequencies that I was not tuned into. That phrase always struck me because that's exactly what Jesus talks about in the passage I just read. To be tuned into the frequencies of the fact of God's fatherhood. And that gives a certain restfulness to a person's demeanor, a certain inner, a certain inner fortitude and ease of life, because they're resting and trusting in their Heavenly Father. So yes, uh, last week I told you, you must pursue holiness and godliness. But it's not, holiness and godliness and spiritual progress is not about some grinding, unpleasant effort. It's a lightness of, it's running with joy. I don't know who's a runner out there, I certainly am not. But when I do run, and I have run some, ran sometimes, it's almost like you get a second win, and running becomes easy. Who's a runner? John, you're a runner. Right? You ever get a second win, and it, it, there's a lightness to your running. That's what I'm talking about. Yet you're going, but you're going with fullness and joy. So be tuned into the frequencies of God's fatherhood. Acknowledge his presence, his provision in your life, his guidance in your circumstances, and choose to shape your intellect with that information and that reality. See life through the eyes of faith. So when we talk about drawing closer to God or drawing nearer to God, I don't mean he's far away. I'm talking about your perspective on his fatherhood. It, your perspective is too far away. So, pursuing deeper fellowship means acknowledging his presence. It's not necessarily grasping for more of his presence. It's acknowledging the presence of God that is already there with you. Number two, deeper fellowship with God means attributing unique experiences in your life to God's own hand working. Attributing unique circumstances in your life to God's own hand working. Now there's always a question, there's always going to be a question in your life whether something that happened to you, an experience you had, a prompting in your heart, is from God or some, some just subjective impulse. And you're going to have to deal with that. But I want to give you some guidance here. What I want to challenge you to do is not see so much of life as just a combination of coincidences. I want to encourage you to look at experiences of life, more of your experience of, experiences of life in terms of God and His providence. Remember Jacob wrestled with the angel, or with God? And there's a scene, I think it's uh, somewhere in Genesis 30s, I believe, or late 20s, um, where Jacob is, is laying down at night, and he sees a man coming across the river. And I imagine this man is coming after him with determination, and he knows, Jacob knows it's about to go down. So Jacob gets up, and he gets, keeps getting closer, so he braces himself, and the man comes, they meet fist to fist, they're wrestling all night. It's this very strange experience Jacob had with this man who just comes up to him and starts wrestling with him. And Jacob wrestles with him all night. And during the night, Jacob realizes that this is not just a man. It is during the struggle 
that Jacob realizes that he is fighting and he is wrestling with God. So his wrestling then changes from self-defense to desire. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then God touches his hip, puts it out of joint. And after the Lord is departing, Jacob asks, what is your name? And the angel or the man or God turns around and says, why do you ask my name? Almost as if to say, you know exactly who I am. Why do you ask my name? I believe we go through too many experiences of life asking, was that you, Lord? What is your name? We ask that experience or encounter, was that you? And I believe God is sometimes saying to you, why do you ask my name? Why do you ask if that was me? You know that I am in you. You know that I am with you. You know that I'm your father that's guiding your life. Why do you ask my name? So, I want to encourage you to wrestle with God. Strive, you know what Israel means? One who strives with God. God wants people to strive with him, not in a disrespectful manner, but a reverent, loving, fearful hunger for him. We need to fear God. He is dangerous. There's that great line in C.S. Lewis, um, Chronicles of Narnia, where Mr. Beaver is explaining Aslan, the Christ figure. And uh, Mr. Beaver says to Susan, um, Aslan is a lion, I tell you. And Susan says, a lion? Well, I would be very afraid to meet a lion. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. And it's that danger, it's that fearful awesomeness that's actually attractive to a man or a woman. It's when Moses is on the mountain and he sees God's awful presence and the, the mountain is quaking and trembling and the people of Israel are afraid to touch it. What comes out of Moses? Please show me your glory. There's, he's attracted. We are attracted to God for who he is. And God for who he is is actually awesome and fearful and glorious and dangerous. And too often we paint, paint him out as a grandfatherly figure, like in the 16th chapel. But he is awful, but good. And he loves you. And he calls you to draw near to him. Now, I've told you this before. Um, and I, so if you've heard this, I apologize, but some of you haven't. Um, you need to see... If you're going to live into, live in or towards a more God-conscious reality, if you're going to attribute things to the Lord, it needs to be the actual experiences of your life. So, a few years ago, um, I was listening to a few podcasts um, of people who were very liberal Christians. And my motivation for doing that was I, I love apologetics and I love defending the faith. Um, and so I like, I like hearing the other side and, de and debating with people in my mind. But these, what I was actually doing was inundating my mind with doubt of the Lord, with railing people who slightly railed against God. And even though I was against them, it has an had an effect on my soul, and my spirit felt weak. Then one night, um, I had a dream. And 
in this dream, I dreamed that I entered a, a very dark room. And in this dark room, beyond the, at the end of the room, there was a door. And I knew I should not go in that door. I knew I should not open that door, but I did. I went into the door and opened it. And around the, and in that room, the next room, there were creatures, like half-human creatures, like a tortured soul. There were about 20 of them in a circle, and the circle went down into the depths of the earth. It was a cavernous abyss that they were worshiping around. And I remember walking around this circle on like the sidewalk and actually bumping in to one of them. But they were in such a trance, worshiping something. And um, it was very strange. And so I wanted to get out of the room. So I made the circle and I came out of the door, but I forgot to shut the door behind me. And I remember very distinctly that one of these creatures came back out after me through the door and was mocking me and laughing at me. And you know the reason? He says, he was mocking me because I believed in Deuteronomy 6. What a strange Deuteronomy 6. You know what's in Deuteronomy 6? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When I woke up, I chose to attribute that to the Lord. Now, I could, I could have said, well, that's just a bizarre dream, you know, it's a strange thing. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I, I'm choosing to attribute, see that with eyes of faith and attribute that as a warning to not associate myself with bad company because bad company corrupts good morals. And since that day, it has remained as a perpetual warning not to feed my soul with that kind of thing anymore. And I deleted those podcasts. It doesn't mean I will never listen to somebody who disagrees with me, but it means I will not feed my soul with that kind of thing anymore. So that's just an illustration of what I'm talking about, of attributing things to the Lord. So maybe it's a dream. Now, you know, the Bible says your old men will dream dreams, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I am, I'm getting old. Um, and your young men will see visions. Right? Your young men will see visions, your old men will see dreams. So, begin attributing serendipitous occasions like that to the Lord rather than just seeing them as strange events in your life. I, I, I'm sorry because I know some of you have heard this one too but I have to tell it. Um, when I was in college I felt like the Lord and I, I was a very immature Christian at this point. Very immature Christian. And I felt like the Lord was putting on my heart to pray for someone. Um, and on this sheet of paper, I wrote her name, which I still have with me. And I wrote it right here at the top corner. And I, and I just, I felt like I should pray for this woman. She had been going through a hard time in life. And so I wanted to pray for her. And, um, so I did. Every night before I went to bed, I would just lift her up for a few seconds. But I did that routinely. And it turns out that God's hand was definitely on this. Because I began to date that woman in college and marry her. And she became the, the mother of my children. So it was a good thing that I kept that woman in prayer. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, I can look back and see that that was definitely a prompting of the Lord. Um, but at the time, I could have just shrugged it off. So, oh, that's weird. Why would I think about her? 
You see what I'm saying? Attributing the experiences of your life to God. Um, so, that's what I want to challenge you to do. Um, I remember there was this, I heard a story about a, a little girl um, somewhere, I believe in the Middle East, whose family was a Christian, but very, very poor, very poor. And they couldn't afford, she couldn't afford shoes that fit her. And she had to wear her sister's shoes, and um, they would stuff her, which was far too big. And they would stuff the shoes with paper so it would fit. And this little girl prayed, um, prayed for shoes from the Lord. And I think it was the next day, I think, shoes came up on the doorstep, out of nowhere. Now, she could have seen that as a coincidence, but what she decided to do was see it as the hand of God in her life. And she asked her dad, and her dad said, well, you prayed for that. And she said, it was a very interesting, she said, uh, yeah, I prayed for shoes, and they fit. And I didn't even tell God my size. <laughs> and I think that's a book now. He Knows My Size, I think it's called, if you want to look it up. He Knows My Shoe Size, something like that. Um, so, this is what I mean. And it, this does not mean that every single impulse or every single experience of your life is a matter of divine intervention. It's not. So uh, sometimes you're going to do something you feel like the Lord told you to do and nothing will come of it. So you were wrong, right? You were wrong. Sometimes I feel like, this hasn't happened in a while, but sometimes I feel like it's the middle of the night, I'm in bed, and I feel like God telling me to go to get up and go into the kitchen. I don't know why, but I do. And nothing has ever happened. So I've been wrong every single time. So I'm not saying that every private impulse is from the Lord. But you know what? I bet you the Lord smiles upon that. Because I think it might be from the Lord. So I'm obedient to that, that, that feeling that maybe the Lord is telling me to do something. Calling me to something. All right. So, number one, acknowledging the presence of God you do have. Number two, number two, it is attributing to the Lord experiences in your life. And not just seeing your life as an amalgamation of coincidences. We have a God who is with us. Um, now, does this mean necessarily, the next question, does this mean necessarily... that you'll have a, a unique encounter with God. Because some um, Christians believe that there is a unique experience with the Lord, a, a, a visitation, an encounter with God that you should seek. Here's what I have to say to that, and I'm saying this as best I know how. This is coming from a what I hope is a humble heart and and. I'm not speaking as somebody who knows what I'm talking about right now. I'm speaking as somebody who wants to know what I'm talking about. Deeper fellowship, I believe, from my study of Scripture and men I trust, deeper fellowship may involve a unique encounter with the Lord for you. And it may not. Please understand that. For you, it may or may not involve a unique encounter with the Lord. Paul Washer, who you know I respect, tells about a time in his life where he wanted to know God. And he said, he cried out to the Lord and he said, I am tired of reading books about someone who knew someone, in, who knew someone else, who knew someone else who knew you. 
I want to know you for myself. And so, for four months, he would pray two to four hours a day. He's fasting in prayer. And saying, Lord, you said if, you seek, if I seek you, I will find you. And you have not come. It's been 20 days. And you still have not come, Lord. And eventually, after about four months from what I remember, he went up into the mountains and was fasting and praying in the mountains, throwing rocks at the sky and asking God to come down. And according to Paul Washer, he did. And he came down and he had a unique encounter with the Lord. And he said, I thought the Lord was going to kill me. But as soon as as that fear became almost overwhelming, I was flooded with the love of God. And I heard, don't be afraid. And he said, verses of comfort and peace were coming to his mind um, that he could not explain. And here's the part that really gets me. And I've heard him say this on multiple occasions. And he said, and now the presence of Christ is more real to me than the presence of any one of you in the room. Evidently, this, this encounter has stuck with him even to this day, even though that was many years ago. So I don't want to limit God. I don't want to limit God because just because I have not experienced that does not mean it's not real. Um, I think it can happen. However, however, Please understand that the experiences of other men is not necessarily the rule for you. And this is where we get off track sometimes. Because denominations are built on having or chasing down an experience. But do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? Do all have gifts of healing? Paul would answer that question, no, in the negative. And actually in the Greek, it is in the negative. So not everyone has the same gifts. We are a body, right? Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are heads, some of us are arms. We all have different and unique experiences, and I don't know what the Lord has for you. Here's what I know. I've never spent four months, four hours a day, fasting and praying for God to come down. So maybe it's because I just haven't applied myself as much as he did. And maybe it's the same for you. So, um, God may have an experience for you, or he may not. I think he gifts different things for different people. Paul, Paul was struck down on the Damascus Road and caught up into the third heaven. Not everyone was caught up in the third heaven. Only Paul. Not everyone had a revelation like John had, but John did. Right? So I think certain men and women are used of God in certain ways, and God requires them and calls them to do something and gives them a unique encounter so that they can do it. But it doesn't mean they're more, and it doesn't mean you're lesser. It means that God has a different call in your life. So, there's a, there's a scene in the Gospels where Peter asks um, Jesus. Oh, Jesus says um, to Peter, Peter, they're going to, they're going, you're going to die for the Gospel, essentially he says. You're going to die. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. And Peter says, looks at John, the Apostle John, and points to him. And he says, what about this man, Jesus? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And I see an analogy there for the Christian life. What about that guy's experience? Why can't I have that experience, Lord? I think God would say to you, if I want him to have that experience, what is that to you? You follow me. So I think that 
many have longed for an experience or an encounter um, which God has not promised them. But what you should want to do is you should want to grow deeper with the Lord. You should want to come to an awareness and appreciation of, of His presence, walk with Him in your day-to-day -day life so that you're attributing experiences and coincidences as not just coincidences but as God's action in your life and I think if you step into re that reality you will see a, a depth and an intimacy which you do not have right now perhaps you do but th for those of you who don't I'm saying um, okay now the next question, and I, I will conclude in just a few minutes, but the next question I have for you is, what means has God given you now? So, okay, we, we've talked about living for the glory of God. We've talked about pursuing a deeper fellowship with God. What has God given us to do that with? What has he given us? He's given you three... I, so people often ask, you know, how can I grow? How can I pursue God? How can I glorify God with my life? I want, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do that. And I, I say that with a, a firm assurance. I'm going to tell you precisely how you can glorify God in your life and seek the depth of fellowship that God has for you. The rest of this series is about that, but I want to give you a snapshot right now. Number one, he has given you three means of grace, specifically, that I'm thinking of. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the animating principle of your life. It is the life of God in the soul of man. And Paul says, if we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. So do you want to live a God-glorifying life and pursue Him? You must keep in step with the Spirit and kill sin in your life and live a fruitful life of virtue for God. That's the first and fundamental way. Secondly, you have the Word of God in scripture and Jesus said man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God Psalm 1 talks about the man who meditates on the word like a tree planted by streams of water thirdly he has given you the opportunity to approach the father through the son by the spirit and communicate with the God of glory in prayer. And you can go to him to receive grace and mercy in times of need. Hebrews calls it the throne of grace. The Holy Spirit, keeping a step with the Holy Spirit, saturating yourself with the word of God, and going to the Lord in prayer are the ways you can seek life and vitality in God. And to the degree you use them, you will find it. With the measure you use, it will be measured unto you, Jesus said. He has not only given you those things, and spiritual progress isn't just about project self. It's not just a self-enhancement project. Because once God gives you life and vitality... He desires for you to become a fruitful being in his world. Right? The sower plants the seed and some bear 30, 60, and 100 fruits. So, the, and Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about the area of influence that God has assigned to him. What are the areas of influences that God has assigned to you? There are three. It is your personal home life. And that means you have money 
resources, and people in your life whom God has given you specifically to steward, to pray for, to disciple, especially fathers and mothers. He's given you a home life. Number two, he's given you a church family. And please understand, I think, I'm of the opinion that the church is not primarily about you. The church, the reason we have a church is so that there might be a witness to something other than the world. A witness to God's power in the world. A, a counterculture that is salt and light who shines so the world might see it and glorify God. So, when I say the church is not primarily about you, it is a means of grace, but what I'm thinking here is more that God has given you a people to influence, to worship with, to serve them, to sacrifice for them, to build them up in love, to be offended by and then forgive. To offend and then ask for forgiveness. Too many people leave local churches because of an offense. But the love of but love covers a multitude of sins, right? Third area of influence he's given you, home, church, he's given you an opportunity to be an influence for the kingdom of God. And this is the rule and realm of God's reign. That's what the kingdom of God is. It is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is entered through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and it is available now. And the way you can sow into that kingdom is primarily through the word which we call evangelism. And some of you are doing that at college campuses and um, in your own private life through conversations. And I, oh, I honor that. I love that. That's how you can sow. That's how you can be fruitful in God's world. So, he, this is exactly how you can live a God-glorifying life and pursue Him. You can keep in step with the Spirit. You can absorb your life with the Word. You can be a man or woman who is constant in prayer, a praying life. You can steward what God has entrusted to you in your home, money and people and resources. You can um, be an influence in your local church and you can contribute to God's kingdom through grace-driven effort, which is smiled upon in the eyes of God. It's the talent God has given you. What do you do with that for the kingdom? And God smiles on those who have spent themselves for the Lord. The last question I'm going to answer then is those are the means God has given you. What do you do with them? I've just answered that question. I'll answer it again in another way. What you do with them is you apply yourself diligently to them. Apply yourself diligently to the Word, the Spirit, prayer, your home life, the church, and the kingdom. Spiritual growth is not just going to happen to us by accident. You're not just going to find yourself having grown without doing anything. This is, it does not happen by passivity. When Paul said to Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life with which you have been called. I assume he knew that Timothy was a Christian. But he does not assume that Christian growth happens passively. It doesn't just happen to you. Don Carson writes this. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, 
prayer, obedience to the scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. What your flesh does, it doesn't drift towards godliness. It drifts in the other direction. So what you must do is apply yourself diligently and then you will become free to a deeper fellowship with God and a more God-glorifying life. But only through discipline is a person free. It is the path to freedom. Suppose there's a, a young man who has an ability to run a four-minute mile, which blows my mind that people can do that. But suppose there, he has the ability to run a four-minute mile. Um, what he needs to do is diligently prepare, diligently practice that. Perhaps he needs to work out his legs. He needs to run consistently every day. Every day, run, practice, diligence and discipline, honing his body, eating right, running, exercise, waking up early, and doing what he needs to do. Now, after a year of doing that, now he is free to do what he was not free to do before. Now he's free. So do you want a deeper fellowship with God? Do you want to live a God-glorifying life? Part of the problem is you cannot, by direct effort, just choose to have a deeper fellowship with God. You can't just say, all right, today I am going to have a deeper fellowship with God. This is grown into through discipline. You can't choose to bench press 300 pounds one day. It's grown into. You can't choose to run a four-minute mile one day. It's that ability is developed through discipline. So, what I'm talking about is freedom to know God. To know God in a deeper way. That is achieved through discipline. You apply yourself diligently, and I don't mean a grinding, unpleasant effort. I mean a second wind of running with a lightness and joy. But you are running. When Paul says, I press on towards the high upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Those of us who are mature will press on with a lightness. All right, I'll close with this word. Last word. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he talks about joy. So I'm not trying to give you a drudgery. Don't think drudgery, think joy in the Christian life. He talks about a man who found buried treasure hidden in a field. And then, in his joy, he sells all that he has so he can buy that field, so that the treasure belongs to him, rightly. That is the Christian life. It is finding treasure in the kingdom of God, in God, and pursuing him as the most awesome, beautiful thing in your life for your joy. See, God doesn't work by taking stuff away from you. God works by giving you something greater to pursue. So pursue him for joy. And leave behind lesser things. And pursue the most greatest and awesome pursuit there is, which is the pursuit of God. Seek his face. Pursue him diligently. And you will find him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you.
Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that your people would seek you and find you. They would have a heart to draw near to you. That we would apply ourselves diligently to what you've given us. And let us thereby find a joyful freedom of existence. Of peace and gladness. And as we approach you closer and closer, I ask that we would be like Philip who saw you in the clouds, Lord, as we draw nearer to you. We love you, Lord. We commit the rest of this day to you. If there's anything I've said today, Lord, that is not in accordance with your word, please let that drop to the floor. But let your word take hold of these people and myself for your glory. Amen and amen.